Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, an exclusive interview with the Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Sien Lung. His nation has got many kudos for its handling of the coronavirus crisis. What lessons might America learn from what that city-state did? Also, should the healthy and young among us go back to work, even if it means more infections? That's what some have suggested, from politicians to businessmen. We'll talk about what it would mean. But first, here's my take. When a crisis hits the United States, the country's general instinct is to rally around the flag and wish the best for its leaders. That's probably why President Trump has seen his approval ratings rise, even though he's had a delayed and fitful approach to this pandemic. But at some point, we Americans must look at the facts and recognize an uncomfortable reality. The United States is on track to have the worst outbreak of coronavirus among wealthy countries largely because of the ineffectiveness of its government. This is the new face of American exceptionalism. The United States now has the most cases of COVID-19 anywhere in the world, outstripping China and Italy. The first line of defense against the disease is testing. On this key metric, the U.S. experience has been a fiasco. We started late using a faulty test and never quite recovered. President Trump's claim that anybody that wants a test can get a test has turned out to be a cruel hoax. Access to tests remains much worse than in most advanced countries. His assertion that the United States has tested more people than South Korea is essentially nonsense because it doesn't take into account that South Korea has one-sixth America's population. Per capita, South Korea has done three times more testing than the United States as of Saturday. Italy, a country not known for the smooth workings of its government, has also tested three times as much per capita as the U.S. Basic medical supplies are running low throughout the United States. In a survey of more than 200 mayors, 90 percent said they don't have enough protective equipment for healthcare workers, like face masks. Eighty-five percent don't have enough ventilators. That means many people could die simply because of a lack of supplies. How did we find ourselves in this situation? It's easy to blame Donald Trump, and the president has been inept from the start. But there is a much larger story behind this fiasco. America is paying the price today for decades of defunding government, politicizing independent agencies, fetishizing local control, and demeaning and disparaging government workers and bureaucrats. This wasn't how it always was. America historically prized limited but effective government. In Federalist 70, Alexander Hamilton wrote, 
a government ill-executed, whatever it may be in theory, must in practice be a bad government. Franklin Delano Roosevelt created the modern federal bureaucracy, which was strikingly lean and efficient. But in recent decades, as the scope of government increased, the bureaucracy was starved and made increasingly dysfunctional. In the 1950s, the percentage of federal civilian employees compared to total employment was above 5%. It has dropped to under 2% today, despite a U.S. population that is twice as large and a GDP that is seven times higher adjusting for inflation than the 1950s. Federal agencies are understaffed but overburdened with mountains of regulations and politicized mandates and rules, giving officials little power and discretion. The FDA's cumbersome rules and bureaucracy, which have proved a huge problem in this case, is just one example among hundreds. The scholar who has long studied this topic, Paul Light, notes that under John F. Kennedy, the cabinet departments had 17 layers of hierarchy. By the time Donald Trump took office, there were a staggering 71 layers. Both parties have contributed to the problem, making the federal government a caricature of bureaucratic inefficiency. And then we have America's crazy quilt patchwork of authority, with thousands of state, local, and tribal public health departments. They're proving a nightmare when tackling an epidemic that knows no borders, and where any locality with a weak response will allow the infection to keep spreading elsewhere. You see, what happens on Florida's beaches doesn't stay on Florida's beaches. It's an easy cop-out to say that America can't mirror China's dictatorship. Of course not. But the governments that are handling this pandemic effectively include democracies like South Korea, Taiwan, and Germany. Many of the best practices employed in places like Singapore and Hong Kong are not tyrannical, but smart. Testing, contact tracing, isolation. But all these places have governments that are well-funded, efficient, and responsive. In today's world, with problems that spill across borders at lightning speed, well-executed government is what makes a country truly exceptional. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. I just told you how Singapore employed best practices against the coronavirus pandemic and has fared very well so far. Only three people in Singapore so far have been killed by the virus. The city-state has a population of about six million people, smaller than New York's. With that fatality rate, though, if Singapore were the size of the United States, that would mean fewer than 200 deaths in America. In fact, the U.S. has had over 2,000 deaths. And if you take a look at this chart from earlier this week, you will see that Singapore has already flattened the curve. So what can we learn from Singapore? Joining me now exclusively is the Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Sien Lung. Welcome, Prime Minister. Good evening. Uh, would, uh, tell us what you think um, Singapore got right. Uh, I mean, many people look at the early, the, the fact that you got in very early, you, you, you developed a test the minute the uh, uh, sequences were published, and you d developed a nucleic acid test. Uh, do you think that it was that? Uh, how do you, uh, you know, wh what do you think is the key to your success? I hesitate to talk about success because we are right in the midst of a battle which is intensifying. 
We've tried very hard right from the beginning to take this very seriously. Uh, we um, watched what was happening in Wuhan in China. We prepared our people. In fact, we've been preparing for this since SARS, which was 17 years ago. And as the cases started to come in, uh, we were able to identify them because we said, well, treatment for COVID-19 will be free and testing. And we were able also to contact trace and find the contacts of the people who had come in and isolate the contacts so that we slow down the spread within the population. And we've tried very hard also to explain to the population what it is we are facing, what we need to do, and what are the steps which we need them to cooperate with us so that our efforts can succeed, such as keeping safe distances from one another, such as watching their own personal hygiene, such as staying home if they're sick and not going to work and not socialising. And with great effort, I think it has helped to keep the number of cases down, but I'm under no illusions that we have won. We are just going in and there's a long battle ahead. So let me ask you about contact tracing, because that is one of the things that you seem to have done particularly well. Uh, you, you used people's phones the minute somebody was, uh, was uh, diagnosed and tried to figure out exactly where they had been. You now even have an app which people can get to tell them if they are close to somebody else who might have uh, tested positive. Um, how, how difficult was it to do all this? We have not been using phone data. We have been interviewing people, asking them, uh, interviewing them, tra tracking down their contacts, interviewing their contacts, trying to piece a story together. It's traditional detective work and patient work. And we, we hope to get a quick answer out within a couple of hours. But in fact, we've pursued the cases for days to try and pin down who talked to whom and who might have given the virus to whom. Uh, we do have an app now which um, we hope will be able to track who has come into contact with somebody else who also has the app and who might be sick. But it's really work in progress and uh, we don't know yet how well that will work. How do you respond to people who say, well, Singapore is able to do this because, you know, it has these controls. It is a, it is a paternalistic system. The, the government has more powers than in other places. We have not taken extraordinary powers. I think the key thing is people must understand what we are facing and must support what we are doing and cooperate with us and have confidence in the government. And we put a lot of effort into explaining to them what is happening, speaking to them, and I've done it a few times directly on television. So people know that we are level and we tell it straight. We are transparent. If there's bad news, we tell you. If there are things which need to be done, we also tell you. And I think that you have to maintain that trust because if people don't trust you, even if you have the right measures, it's going to be very hard to get it implemented. You, you've talked about the economic situation to your, to your people, and you just came out with a, a second budget, even though you had planned for, in February for, you know, kind of relief budget, you've come out with a new budget that is five times, I think, larger. Um, yes. You described in your speech, you said, this is not going to be a V-shaped recovery. It's not going to be a U-shaped recovery. Right now, it just feels like it's going down. Explain what you think the economic consequences here are. Well, first of all, there's a direct impact on certain sectors. Aviation has died, for example. Tourism is dead. 
And all the travel industry which is associated with that, the hotels are in considerable difficulties. So that's an impact which is not going to go away, away in, in a hurry. Secondly, supply chains are getting disrupted because uh, other countries are not operating at full steam, their economies are locked down, and so supplies are not coming in, and our production is also affected, and our exports are also affected, and that's a broad-based impact on the rest of the economy. Then you've got the self-employed, the gig economy, the people who depend on entertainment, who depend on uh, normal socialising, who, who get jobs day by day, and those jobs have all evaporated. And I don't see that coming back until such time as people gain confidence that they have a hold on the virus, that we can resume normal socialising, normal travelling, normal human intercourse. And I think that's quite some time down the road. What does it mean? What does it mean, Prime Minister, to get a hold on the virus? Because there, you know, there are these theories. You have to develop herd immunity, which would mean, you know, infecting forty percent of the population or so. Or does it really just have to wait for that vaccine or perfect therapy? Well, if you are going for herd immunity, you have to uh, have a big proportion of the population infected. Angela Merkel, who speaks very carefully, talked about seventy percent of the German population, possibly. And, well, if, you go, if we have to go that route all the way, I think it's either going to be very, very painful because there will be a huge spike and you will have an uncontrolled outbreak as happened in some cities in northern Italy or in China. Or you have to flatten the curve and it takes a very, very long time. So you've got to hope for an off-ramp to get off that path. And the only visible way of get a, to get an off-ramp is to have either a treatment or an effective vaccine. And that's some distance down the road, but many very smart people are working very hard at it. I can only hope and pray that they'll make some progress soon. Stay with me. I will be back with the Prime Minister of Singapore, Prime Minister Lee, to talk about, among other things, China. Is it the victim, the accuser, the helper, the help? When we come back. And we are back with Singapore's Prime Minister, Lee Hsien Lung. Prime Minister, you follow China very carefully and you also follow the debate in the United States. You know there are a lot of people, including our Secretary of State, who have said that the Chinese government is in some way to blame for this uh, pandemic because uh, they were, they, they were silence, uh, silent about the fact it was happening. They were secretive. They covered it up. They punished the, the doctor who uh, was tried to you know, be a kind of whistleblower about it. Uh, do you think that that is a fair uh, criticism of China? I'm sure that there are many aspects of the Chinese response to this outbreak which they will look back upon and uh, believe that they should have done better. But I don't think overall that one can say this would not have happened if only the Chinese had done the right thing. Because you look at the way the outbreak has continued, grown and spread in many countries and they don't have the Chinese government, and yet they have not found it easy to keep the outbreak under control in their country. So I think that uh, we are in a very difficult situation, and uh, it's most constructive for us now to look ahead and, and make up, find the best way to move forward and deal with a problem which we now have. 
you see how this has worsened U.S.-China relations with uh, the Secretary of State making these accusations, the official spokesman of the Chinese foreign ministry blasting back. Uh, does this worry you? I mean, you sit in the middle uh, of this situation, in a sense, with good relations with the United States and China. Um, is there a danger here that this virus, one of the side effects of this virus would be a U.S.-Chinese uh, real kind of uh, 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 Cold War? It's a most unfortunate situation to be in. I mean, U.S.-China relations have been complicated even before this. But if you are going to deal with this virus, you've got to get all the countries to be working together, in particular U.S. and China. And under the best of circumstances, it's going to be a very difficult challenge for mankind. But if the U.S. and the Chinese are swapping insults and blaming one another for inventing the virus and letting it loose on the world, I don't think that that is going to help us solve the problem sooner. It strikes me that with something like a pandemic, it's so obvious that it spills across borders. It's so obvious that it uh, can only be uh, handled if everyone is in some way cooperating, sharing information, sharing best practices. And typically, the United States has taken the lead on organizing uh, some of these kinds of global responses. Uh, the Trump administration does not seem that interested what happens in the in the with the absence of U.S. leadership? Can you have, a, you know, can the world organize itself without without some kind of uh, agenda setting at least? Uh, the, the world has greatly benefited from American leadership in situations like this for decades. If America is in a different mode, well, we will get by, and I think other configurations will eventually work out, but it would be a loss. You'd prefer to see American uh, leadership on this, on this issue? Yes, of course. You have the resources, you have the science, you have the influence, you have the soft power, and you have the track record of dealing with these problems convincingly and successfully and in the greater good of many countries, not just the U.S. And it's a pity not to put those resources to work now to deal with this very grave challenge to mankind. Let me ask you about something you said uh, in our previous segment. You said that you, you were going to have to keep flattening the curve until a vaccine or, or, or a therapy was found. Um, so you're thinking about the flattening of the curve not as something that you do for a month or two and then restart the economy. You, th you think this is potentially a year, 18 months of flattening? I, I would. That would be my guess. I'm not a professional epidemiologists or infectious disease specialists, but I don't see this problem going away in a couple of months. It's, spent, it's taken several months to more or less bring under control in China. It's taking off in Europe now and will take many months to bring under control. It's taking off in America now, and I, that's not going to disappear soon. And there are other huge parts of the world where... We don't quite know what's happening, but I think that it will happen. It will happen in India, it will happen in Southeast Asia, it will happen in Africa and Latin America. So by the time it goes around the world and then finally runs its course, I think that's several years unless something happens to abort that process. Prime Minister, there are a lot of people in Singapore who tell me that they wish that you would stay on. You plan to, to leave office. You, you have... Uh, elections at some point have to happen. Could this crisis make you decide to postpone that decision to, to leave politics? 
I think we have, this crisis keeps my hands full. Let's just focus on that for now. All right. Prime Minister uh, Lee Hsien Loong, pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you. Next on GPS, President Trump says he wants the country to get back to normal by Easter. Does the deadline make any sense for the economy or public health? We have some experts to discuss. We're opening up this incredible country because we have to do that. I'd love to have it open by Easter. I would love to have the country opened up and uh, just raring to go by Easter. After seeing the economy grind to a halt and the stock market take precipitous falls, Donald Trump wants to go from today's status quo, where more than two-thirds of Americans are under some sort of stay-at-home order, to having the nation open by Easter. That is just two weeks from now. Trump's top infectious disease specialist, Dr. Anthony Fauci, had a very different view. He doesn't think we can set a date. As he says, the virus makes the timeline. Let me bring in today's panel to discuss Dr. David Katz is a board-certified specialist in preventive medicine and public health. Some have speculated that Trump got the idea to reopen America quickly from Katz's recent New York Times op-ed. Donald McNeil is a New York Times reporter who writes about plagues, pestilence, and public health. And Rana Farua is CNN's global economic analyst and a global business columnist for the Financial Times. Dr. Katz, let me ask you... Um, you, you say that the piece you wrote, um, uh, the, the evidence uh, and time has passed so, so sufficiently that you've actually changed your mind. Explain exactly what has happened that has made you change your mind. Well, Fried, I don't know that I've changed my mind. My position never supported what the president said. The idea of an arbitrary return to the world is dangerous nonsense and, and always was. Uh, I agree with Dr. Fauci, the virus has to dictate part of this, but more than that, our understanding of the virus and health risks in the population. Really what I've been saying from the start is that the global data show massive risk differentials. Some of us are at much higher risk of severe infection and death than others. The latest data from Italy, where there have been nearly 10,000 deaths, show that only 1.2% of all of those deaths are in people under age 50, and only 2.1% of all of those deaths are in people who don't have a major prior chronic disease, and only a tiny fraction of a percent are in people who are both healthy and under 50. So the idea is that some portion of the population could potentially return to the world early if we had the right data to inform that, and we may not be left to choose between everybody back to the world now take your chances, preposterous nonsense, and everybody hunker in isolation, in anxiety, uncertainty, and doubt until maybe we have a vaccine, or if you're old and sick to begin with, maybe you die of something else while waiting. I'm talking about a middle path. I was always talking about a middle path. Unfortunately, in modern American discourse, every idea is turned into a caricature. Uh, explain to me what the timeline for this, you know, for, because what, so what you're saying is essentially have some of these low risk people start to work. Um, you're thinking about, you know, a month, uh, something like so, that. So six Fried, weeks? First of all, I, I want to thank you for your thoughtful commentary. I read your Washington Post piece. I thought it was great. Your interview just now with the prime minister of Singapore was beautiful. Uh, his commentary was beautiful. 
But consider what he said uh, years uh, in lockdown. I mean, the world, this, the end of civilization as we know it effectively, while we wait for a vaccine, we don't know when it's coming. Essentially, I, I, I don't know whether this is two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, but here's what I'm saying. What we should be doing now, first of all, the public deserves to know. My parents deserve to know. My 80-year-old parents deserve to know. There's a plan for a plan. And it's data-informed, and we're collecting the data. Who has this? Who's likely to need hospitalization? Who's likely to need an ICU bed? Who is likely to have such a mild version of this infection they don't even know they have it? All of those questions can be answered with data. There are two radical positions. Again, take your chances no matter what your baseline age or health status or lock everybody away indefinitely. What I'm saying is we can quickly learn in a span of just weeks if we have the same massive risk differentials that we're seeing in South Korea, that we're seeing in Germany, and that we're even seeing in Italy. And if that's the case, a large portion of the population returning to the world could achieve herd immunity at a very low risk of severe infection and dying. And we could double down on protecting people like my parents and protecting people with prior health problems so that we do a better job of sheltering them, providing them services, providing them information while they wait it out. And then we avoid both extremes the prime minister talked about. We don't shut the world down for years, which is calamitous, but we also don't achieve herd immunity at the cost of a very high number of deaths because those most at risk of severe infection and dying are the very ones we shelter away and the rest of us who can afford to get this because we're very likely to get over it, and by the way, I think I have it and I'm awaiting my test results, we're the ones who go back to the world early, achieve that herd immunity that allows us to resume normal life. But I can't say how many weeks that is. Nobody can because we've done such a poor job in this country of gathering the data, absolutely essential to answer that question. It's some amount of time. Dr. Fauci says the virus will tell us how long. I would argue it's us doing the epidemiologic work with the virus. It's understanding that will dictate the timeline. But some arbitrary timeline, uh, that was never anything I wrote about. And I think that's a huge mistake. Uh, Don McNeil, what do you what do you make of this? Uh, I'm glad that Dr. Katz has backed off his original thinking a bit. I found that piece that he wrote in the Times shocking from somebody who has an MD and some of the interviews he gave afterwards, because it essentially argued that we should trade lives for his father's 401k, that we should let people out there so we can achieve herd immunity. The, the whole concept of herd immunity is different when you've got a novel virus. Herd immunity in the old days was something that the old had because they had survived smallpox and they were able to go out there and keep the economy going until the fields while the young recuperated, the ones who survived. Right now, we're in a situation where nobody has herd immunity. And so saying we can all go out to work um, in, you know, on Easter uh, or, or even a couple of months for Easter is, is asking to watch enormous numbers of people die. I mean, the original paper said that we should just put away the vulnerable and make sure that they're okay. Perhaps Dr. Katz's parents have a nice house. He's a retired cardiologist. Um, but many elderly people, I, I checked the stats, there are now 50 million people over the age of 65 in this country. Where are we going to hide the obese who are likely to have diabetes, who are likely to have heart disease or lung diseases? Where do we hide people who have asthma? Where do we hide pregnant women like my daughter? 
Where do we hide even teenagers? Because the FDA now says that vaping is a possible risk factor for this disease. So before we went into lockdown, if you read the epidemiological models, the real ones, we were on track to lose between 500,000 and 10 million people. That's not something I want to sacrifice in order to bring the economy back in a big hurry. We have to think of ourselves in a situation now where we are not going to be able to think about our 401ks or take retirement at the time we wanted to. We're going to have to think about getting enough calories, perhaps for the next year until a vaccine is here. If a treatment works and the clinical trials are going on now, that will be fantastic. But even if chloroquine works or one of the other drugs, we're going to need 330 million pills per day to use it as prophylaxis. Where is that going to come from? Who's going to run the factories? Most of those pills are made in India. India is having a, an outbreak right now. We're going to have the worst outbreak in the world until India surpasses it. But quite soon, we're going to surpass everybody else in deaths because we're the third biggest co country in the world. And this is just, it was an extremely dangerous way of thinking. And I wish Dr. Katz would take that paper back and apologize for it, because I think it, it provided a scientific underpinning for Donald Trump to say things like the cure is worse than the disease. And I know what it feels like to provide the scientific underpinning for Donald Trump because one of my articles did that. I wrote the one that said on February 28th that Donald Trump did the right thing by closing the border to China. And closing the border to China did, even according to the WHO, save us two or three weeks. But it's nine weeks since then and we squandered the time we bought. It was as if a man in a high crime neighborhood went out and put a, put a beware of the dog sign on the, uh, on the lawn to scare off the, the criminals then went back inside, didn't buy a dog, didn't buy a lock, and didn't put bars on the house. And now we're overrun. And I'm afraid we're facing a whole series of Wuhans around in, in New York, in Seattle, in New Orleans, in Detroit, in a number of other cities. We're going to have to suffer through what China suffered through. And I think that's disastrous. All right. Of course, I will ask Dr. Katz to respond. But when we come back, I'm also going to ask Rana, who's been patiently waiting, to tell us about the economics. Are we talking about a second Great Depression or is Ben Bernanke right when he says this will be like a snowstorm of limited long term consequence when we come back? And we are back with David Katz, Donald McNeil and Rana Faruha. Rana, let me bring you into this conversation. Um, we know what has happened to the economy. It has essentially paralyzed, freezed up in a way that, frankly, I don't think there's any historical parallel. Uh, we also have the stimulus package, we'll call it what you will, which is larger than ever, I and mean, it's 10 percent of GDP. Um, what is the likely economic future for the next few months? Uh, uh, it's going to be bleak. I mean, there's no question, you know, um, and, and that would be true um, whether we were all in quarantine for two weeks or two months. Um, you know, we've just seen record unemployment numbers. We've seen market falls that parallel, you know, something from the 19 great crash of the 1920s, um, the period in the aftermath of that. You know, one of the things that's really important for people to recognize, though, is even when we are in the clear with the virus, 
we still have a lot of underlying problems in the economy. We have a massive debt bubble, a record corporate debt bubble out there. And so a lot of us that follow the economy, we're expecting there to be some kind of major correction, if not a crash, with or without the coronavirus. But what we're seeing now is a perfect storm of Main Street being hit, so many people being out of work, and Wall Street being hit at the same time. And those two things have a snowball effect that's going to be damaging for months, if not years. And Rana, do you think that that means that, um, you know, the stock market, which is still down roughly 30 percent, um, when I compared to 08, 09, when it fell 55 percent, uh, 2000, when it fell 70 percent, you think we're, we're, you think markets haven't grappled with how serious this is? I don't think so, because, again, I see this more akin to the period of 1929 and its aftermath, where you have the unwinding of a huge debt bubble. You know, yes, we have a pandemic, and that's a singular event and a, and a terrible one, but we also have pressures in the system that have been building up and building up for at least 10 years, if not more. Um, a lot of things that we haven't um, really fixed since the great financial crisis that are now coming home to roost at a time when, you know, Main Street is crippled. So, um, yeah. I do. I think that we're going to be in a period certainly of um, market correction and sluggish growth for, I think, years to come. And people think the U.S. can get out of this because uh, it has the reserve currency of the world and it can print dollars at will. What do you think? What do you say to that? Well, it's interesting. You know, Chinese and Russians are buying gold. A lot of foreigners are selling U.S. T-bills. Um, it's true that the dollar is the reserve. And, you, you know, as you often say, you can't replace um, something with nothing. But what I would say is we are headed to a world that is going to be more local, more regional. I don't think globalization is going to reset exactly like it was in the 1990s. And I think that the dollar may be in for a fall. If you think about this, this $2 trillion stimulus package, and this may be one of many to come, um, the Fed is printing money right now, and that ultimately could degrade the value of the dollar and dollar assets. So that's something I'm very concerned about. Fascinating. Um, Dr. Katz, let me give you a chance to respond. And I think the core issue that, that Don McNeil says is this is an unknown virus. The, 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 the danger of taking a chance and saying, let the, the general population achieve herd immunity is very high because we don't know a lot about it. And what if that herd immunity is achieved with a 2% death rate, which would be hundreds of thousands of Americans. It, it looks to be the opposite, though, Fareed. In other words, the, the virus looks like it's very widespread in the U.S., and a lot of people have already had it and never knew. We need to find out. I've never suggested doing anything that wasn't data-driven. Also, to be clear, I can't be personally responsible for a president who deals with nuanced public health policy in tweets with all the refinement of farts. Uh, this is a nuanced discussion, and the goal here is total harm minimization. I never talked about trading lives against dollars. I'm a humanist, not an economist. I love my parents. I'm a public health physician. But we're going to lose lives to the virus, and we're going to lose lives was, as we erode the social determinants of health. People lose their jobs, desperation, depression, addiction, suicide. There's been a spike in domestic violence already. There's been a rush to buy guns already. People aren't using guns to shoot the coronavirus, so what are those for? We need to look at total harm minimization. And what I've argued is we should be gathering data. And this was the argument from the start. It just got characterized. But we should be gathering data so we can risk stratify. And all of the people who most need protection, it's not just old people or people with heart disease. It may very well be pregnant women. We need to find out. But even if it's 50 million people, we can do a better job 
of sheltering 50 million people than we can of sheltering 330 million people. And right now, I think I we're doing let, a I poor got, job. I, I, I got to let you go, uh, Dr. Sure. Katz. Um, we will we will have all of you on again. This thing is not going away. I really appreciate this. A serious, substantive conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Next on GPS, some good news. Really. For all of you staying at home, which means most of you, if you need some good book recommendations, we've put up three years worth of my books of the week. They're available at cnn.com slash Fareed. This week, as you sit at home, if you're pining for travel, well, you can experience it vicariously and hilariously in Less, a novel by Andrew Sean Greer. It's a funny, sweet novel that won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a story of a gay man who travels around the world to get away from an old love, but then unexpectedly finds himself in the process. A fun read. If you want something grander to take your mind off the news and sweep you along, I'm rereading John Steinbeck's East of Eden, which is my candidate for the great American novel. Before we go, a few parting words. Following times of crisis, terror attacks, hurricanes, mass shootings, our spirits have historically been lifted by inspiring stories of people coming together. This time, though, the crisis itself forced us all apart. There can be no spontaneous gatherings, no concerts, no vigils uniting people in their grief. But even though we can't physically come together, it doesn't mean that the world is devoid of displays of humanity and even camaraderie. There were the quarantined Italians serenading each other across balconies and singing their national anthem along with the radio. High atop Rio de Janeiro, the statue of Christ the Redeemer was illuminated with flags of countries affected by the virus, along with messages of prayer. In Canada, France, the UK, and other places, residents cheered to show gratitude for healthcare workers at an appointed hour every day. Spanish police officers serenaded housebound residents. Fitness instructors led group balcony workouts from neighboring rooftops. Tens of thousands responded to a call for reserve medical staffing in New York City alone. Food and funds were donated generously. Musicians and opera singers posted performances for free on the Internet. Countries came to each other's aid. China and Russia, for example, sent medical equipment and expertise to embattled Italy. And sometimes it was companies, not individuals or countries, showing solidarity. Distilleries made hand sanitizer. Fashion designers offered to produce face masks. Companies like SpaceX and Bloom Energy pivoted from manufacturing rocket ships and fuel cells to making and refurbishing ventilators. A world of online courses has ramped up to deal with the rising traffic of all those kids at home. I asked the Twitterverse for examples of good news through these trying times, and I heard from many of you, some of you sending the stories we just heard. Please continue to tweet at Fareed Zakaria and respond on Facebook with examples of the light of humanity shining through the darkness. These acts of kindness, small and large, remind us of who we are and the world we want to build when this is all over. Thanks so much to all of you for being part of my program this week, and I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.